Brian McClanahan Show, episode 408. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Help keep the lights on. Help keep the podcast going. You get a Brian McClanahan book plate. You can order one of my books. I've got several of those. My latest is Southern Scribblings. 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. You also click on that shop tab while you're at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But the best way to support the show is to go to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll. That's mclanahanacademy.com. And it's 10 Myths of American History, great class. And, of course, you can purchase classes there, which do help keep this podcast free of charge. And also, you get great educational material out of it. So it's a win-win. You help keep the, the podcast going free of charge, and you get great stuff. So I'd highly recommend going to mclanahanacademy.com. In fact, what I'm going to be doing today on this particular episode of The Brian McClanahan Show is giving you a preview, a pseudo-preview of what I do in my latest class, originalist papers. And the reason I say it's somewhat of a preview, because I'm actually going to focus on a document that's not included in that, and uh, but was very important in the ratification process. And I say it's very important. So what I'm covering here is material that I cover in uh, part two of this class. Part one is already out. You can get that one right now. It covers the dates of uh, September 1787 to December 1787. And all of the public documents, whether they're speeches, pamphlets, essays, what we would call op-eds today, in favor of the Constitution. That's the way the Constitution was ratified. And this particular document, and what I'm going to do is look at these two things together today, actually work with what I talked about yesterday in this Clarence Thomas dissent when it comes to the Pennsylvania case that the Supreme Court refused to hear. Because the question is, what's the originalist position here? I mean, what would the founding generation say about what's happening in Pennsylvania? Well, I tried to give you that yesterday in saying, well, I think the argument would be made that the people of Pennsylvania need to get rid of these bad actors in the Supreme Court. They need to get rid of the bad actors in the legislature. And we know, we know the Republicans in the Pennsylvania legislature passed legislation allowing for mail-in ballots. Why did they even open the Pandora's box? is the real question. Why did they even do it? This should be a big question moving forward, and there should be a movement in Pennsylvania to try to restrict that in the future. But, I mean, this has to come down to the people of Pennsylvania. I went ahead and read the, the Pennsylvania Constitution. From what I gather in, in Pennsylvania, and I'm no expert on Pennsylvania uh, uh, law, but to get rid of a justice, a Supreme Court justice, first of all, they're not appointed for life, so I think they have 10-year terms. That means you can vote those people out, too. To get rid of them another way, you have to create a, a commission. It's got to be this panel. and they got So impeachment's a whole different process. Removing a judge is a whole different process in Pennsylvania than just straight impeachment from the legislature. 
So there have to be a much more involved process to get rid of a judge. But you can vote those people out. Now, in normal times, when you have normal elections and not expanding mail-in balloting, which is a recipe for disaster because you're inviting fraud, whether it actually happens or not, you're inviting it. You're inviting somebody to figure out how to do it. We should be restricting that as much as possible and saying we have an election day. But that's a whole other story. And But what I'm going to talk about today goes in the original position. What did that section of the article, it's uh, Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, of the U.S. Constitution, what did that actually mean? How did that apply? Because this is what Thomas relied on to make his dissent. He said, look, we have this part of the Constitution that says, you know, the legislatures make the rules for representatives and senators. And I brought up, well, I mean, they really should be going after this situation where a representative was perhaps uh, egregiously harmed by mail-in balloting. Maybe this was the case. That's the area where the legislature really didn't have a role in this. The judges, the courts did. But if due processes follow, then, I mean, you get into this very gray area here. But Thomas is relying on that. Now, on the con, on the, on the con side of that, contrary to that, the state of Pennsylvania still sent a representative to the Congress. They didn't withhold one. They didn't say we're not going to send one. They didn't say we're not going to do any of this. So, There is that part of it as well, and I think we need to focus on these two things. So I want to talk about a particular speech that was made February 1st, 1788 in the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention by Sam Adams. Now, Sam Adams is one of my favorite members of the founding generation. Very interesting character. I talk about him in my founding father's class at mclanahanacademy.com. I also covered him in my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers And I covered him in my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, at least some of the things he said. This particular speech, though, is interesting because he's making an argument for a proposed Bill of Rights. Now, an argument against it, of course, was that if you codify these Bill of Rights, if you say these are the rights we have, well, the general government's going to say we can do anything else that you don't list here. And somebody pointed out that this is the exact argument Hamilton was making. It wasn't just Hamilton. Lots of people made that argument. In fact, this is why Hamilton wasn't really that unique or novel in the ratification process. He's just conspicuous because of his position that he held later on. But Roger Sherman made the same argument. James Wilson essentially made the same argument. Every person who was in favor of the Constitution and against the Bill of Rights made the same argument. And their argument was, if we give them a Bill of Rights, what's going to happen is the government's going to abuse power. It's really interesting how this, this works. I mean, the Bill of Rights led to an abuse of power rather than the other way around. This is why there was a preamble added to the Bill of Rights, so that it was clear misconstruction is what we're going against here. But Sam Adams in February of 1788, February 1st, stands up and makes a speech, and he says, look, the day before he made a speech thanking John Hancock for suggesting that they should have a Bill of Rights, and John Hancock was presiding over the convention. John Hancock was the George Washington of Massachusetts. And so Sam Adams makes a speech, and he was like, I mean, very close in stature to John Hancock. Uh, He was very well respected. So Sam Adams makes a speech, and he says, thank you for proposing these. I think what's going to happen after I read all the debates, after I've read speeches and pamphlets and everything in the other states, I think what this is going to do is quiet all of that opposition to the document. It's going to show people that all these fears that they have, if we just present a list of 
amendments that would make the Constitution better, people will look at Massachusetts and say, well, here, Massachusetts has led the way, and we're going to do what similar things what Massachusetts wants should the Constitution be ratified. Now, Virginia was on the same page, and even Adams mentions that. He says, I've talked to people in Virginia. They're on board with the Bill of Rights. This is what we need to do. So I want to talk about this speech and a couple of parts of this speech, and then I want to look at the amendment that he's referring to as I do this. So Hancock had this list of amendments, and Sam Adams made a speech in favor of these amendments, and he expounded on what these amendments meant, and that's important. Anybody that is a fan of the Tenth Amendment Center is going to really appreciate this first part of it. Anyone that wants to think locally, act locally, is really going to appreciate this. By the way, if you like the podcast here, too, and I didn't mention this, you know, share it around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcast. Please do that because that's how we get more people thinking locally and acting locally. But this is also what I do in my originalist papers class. I go through these documents and I expand on what these people were saying and how important these things are. So let's look at this February 1, 1788 speech that Sam Adams made. He says, as your excellency was pleased yesterday to offer for the consideration of this convention, he's talking about the ratifying convention in Massachusetts, certain propositions intended to accompany the ratification of the Constitution before us, I did myself the honor to bring them forward by a regular motion, not only from the respect due to your excellency, but from a clear conviction in my own mind that they would tend to effect the salutary and important purposes which you had in view. So he's saying, look, I brought this forward a motion. We're going to ratify these things because I think these amendments are going to have the salutary, beneficial, and important purposes. And he quotes it here. The removing the fears and quieting the apprehensions of many of the good people of this commonwealth and the more effectually guarding against an undue administration of the federal government. The whole point of the Bill of Rights was to restrict the power, he says it, of the federal government, not the states. Not the states. The states had unlimited powers, but of the federal government, at least unlimited powers is not defined by their own constitution, of the federal government. This is really important because here he spells out right here, the Bill of Rights only applies to the federal government. There's no incorporation. And that's how the founding generation understood this whole thing. There's no incorporation. It doesn't exist. These apply to the federal government. So this is Sam Adams. This isn't just some guy like me sitting here behind a microphone. This is Sam Adams, one of the most important members of the founding generation, saying these things. I beg leave, sir, more particularly to consider those propositions and in a very few words to express my own opinion that they must have a strong tendency to ease the minds of gentlemen who wish for the immediate operation of some essential parts of the proposed Constitution, as well as the most speedy and effectual means of obtaining alterations in some other parts of it, which they are solicitous, should be made. I will not repeat the reasons I offered when the motion was made, which convinced me that the measure now under consideration will have a more speedy as well as a more certain influence and affecting the purpose last mentioned than the measure proposed in the Constitution before us. So then he gets into, he's saying, look, if we do this, people are going to ratify the Constitution much more quickly. It's going to get put in effect. Those that really want this document, you're going to get what you want, and those that are against it, they're going to get what they want too. This is really a compromise in many ways. 
So then he says, Your Excellency's first proposition is, quote, that it be explicitly declared that all powers not expressly delegated to the Congress are reserved to the several states to be by them exercised. This is essentially the core of the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, let me point something out here. This was the first amendment in the list that came out of Massachusetts. It's a point I make in my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, in my American Constitutions class. I make it in my Originalist Papers class. It's very important to understand this. This is the first amendment. It was the most important of the list. Many states did the exact same thing. Madison, when he started condensing these things, miraculously put it near the end. To Madison, the most important amendment was what we now see as the First Amendment. But to most people, it was the Tenth Amendment, or in this case, the First Amendment coming out of Massachusetts. Adams continues, This appears to my mind to be a summary of a Bill of Rights. It's a summary of Bill of Rights. In other words, the whole Bill of Rights is this. There would be no Bill of Rights without the Tenth Amendment. It wouldn't exist. This is a summary of the Bill of Rights. We don't have a Tenth Amendment. We don't have a Bill of Rights. Because what we're saying here is these are powers that the general government cannot do. And everything else goes back to the states. Anything that's not in the Constitution, you can't do it. And, of course, you can't infringe on these liberties either. This is, it's, a, it's an odd argument. Of course, I, I point this out in the beginning of this podcast. It's a very odd argument. But this is what they're saying. He says, It removes a doubt which may have entertained respecting the matter and gives assurance that if any law made by the federal government shall be extended beyond the power granted by the proposed Constitution and inconsistent with the Constitution of this state, it will be an error and a judge by the courts of law to be void. Now, Adams gets into a little problem. I mean, there's, again, there's no mention of nullification here. There's no mention of nullification. He's saying the courts are going to adjudge it. He doesn't say which courts. He doesn't say the federal courts. He doesn't say the state courts. But I'm sure he had in mind the state courts. Because all we would have is a Supreme Court, according to the U.S. Constitution, there are no inferior federal courts yet. That would have to be created by Congress. And there was a lot of discussion about that. Would those courts abuse the states? But the state courts still had to uphold the Constitution, the United States Constitution. So if the Congress, the federal government, not pass a law that's extended beyond the power granted by the proposed Constitution, who's doing the granting? Well, the people of the states or the states. And inconsistent with the Constitution of this state. So if that law violates the Constitution of Massachusetts, it should be declared null and void. Then he describes how important this amendment is, and he refers back to the Articles of Confederation. So again, in my American Constitutions class, I make a very important distinction that the Constitution is in many ways a continuation of the Articles because language was lifted from one and added to the other. All they were doing is making a more perfect union, the same union as under the Articles of Confederation. Not a new union, not some new creation. It was the same union. And what kind of union was that? Well, Adams makes it clear. He says it is consistent with the second article in the present confederation 
that each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States Congress, United States and Congress assembled, excuse me, of course, is reserved to the states. I mean, he's saying this is the exact same thing as the state sovereignty section, article section of the Articles of Confederation. So Sam Adams is saying that what became the Tenth Amendment, and now you can say, well, it doesn't say the Tenth Amendment expressly, but this is what, when that amendment was being debated, they said expressly was redundant. Everyone knows that expressly and delegated mean the same thing. You can't have partially delegated, or you can't have halfway, I mean, you could partially, you can't have, um, you know, implicitly delegated. It has to be expressly delegated. There's no implicitly delegated power. It ha- every power is expressly delegated. We say you can do this, you can't do it if it doesn't say you can do it. Now, this allows the other side to wiggle out of this, right? But this is the important thing. The powers are expressly delegated. So the question is here, how do you enforce this? The enforcement mechanism to Sam Adams is going to be the courts. Of course, the courts can cause problems too. Now, the actual amendment that was proposed, and again, I'll read it again, that, ex- that it be explicitly declared that all powers not expressly delegated by the aforesaid Constitution are reserved to the several states to be by them exercised. So, that's an important part of the Constitution. And Adams says, I have long considered this watchful, the watchfulness of the people over the conduct of their rulers the strongest guard against the encroachments of power. And I hope the people of this country will always be thus watchful. So how do you make sure government doesn't abuse its powers? You have to be watchful. Today, the government doesn't want you to be watchful. You can't even read what's in the bill. You've got to pass the bill before you can read the bill. They publish these things, but they know people aren't going to go out and read it because these things are as big as a library. One bill. Thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. Nobody's going to read that unless you have a whole team of people to go through it. It's ridiculous. They don't even know what's in the bill that they're passing anymore. There's no accountability in Washington, D.C. And many states there either. There's no accountability there either because people are distracted by football, by Kanye West and uh, uh, Kim Kardashian. I mean, they, they don't care what's going on in D.C. They only care, well, I want a $15 minimum wage. Well, why not 20 Why not 30 Why not 50 They don't care about any of this stuff. But here, Sam Adams is saying we have to watch the government. And we do that by ensuring that their powers are extremely restricted. And if they go beyond that, we pounce. So, vigilance is important. Vigilance. And I think it takes it on both sides. Look, when the... I've said, I said this in my nine presidents who screwed up America. You can learn a lot from the opposition. It doesn't matter if you really like the guy or not. Look, if you like Donald Trump, you could learn something from the other side. Now, we know that some of what they said was ridiculously stupid, but at times... They were on point. Look, the Tenth Amendment Center has been very much on point with Trump's, the Trump administration and gun, uh, gun rights and other things. He wasn't very good on this. And I think that's important. You need people out there watching the rulers from both sides 
or someone that's really nonpartisan because they're going to give it to both sides. And so I do applaud you know, a lot of people that are very consistent in their principles for doing that because that's how you keep power at, that's how you check it. That's how you keep it contained. Now, this next part, another of your excellency's propositions is calculated to quiet the apprehensions of gentlemen lest Congress should exercise an unreasonable control over the state legislatures with regard to the time, place, and manner of holding elections, which, by the fourth section of the first article, are to be prescribed by in each state by the legislature thereof, subject to the control of Congress. Now, so he brings this up, because we just talked about this yesterday. Look at what he's saying here. The real fear was that the general government would interfere with state elections, not that the states would have control over those elections, or you'd have a court intervene and say, these are the things that happen. No, that wasn't the fear. So you're stretching the meaning. That's why I said Thomas is giving you a textualist understanding of that particular part of the Constitution, not an originalist. And I could actually say that Amy Coney Barrett was more on point with originalism by refusing to hear it. Of course, she didn't give an opinion and saying this is not what this does. This is not how this applies than what Clarence Thomas is saying. Now, look, I can also say Clarence Thomas was right on point for some of the things he was hitting at. Look, you have mail-in voting. It's going to create problems. Why don't we hear the case? We can decide if it doesn't work or not, but we should at least hear it. However, you could say from a religious position, they shouldn't hear it because this is not under the jurisdiction of the federal government in any way whatsoever. I have had my fears lest this control should infringe the freedom of elections, which ought to ever to be held sacred. He's saying about federal government controlling elections. Gentlemen who have objected to this controlling power in Congress have expressed their wishes that it had been restricted to such states as may neglect or refuse that power vested in them and to be exercised by them if they please. May neglect or refuse. In other words... They don't send people to Congress. They don't elect people to go to the Congress. So then the central government has to step in and say, you're going to hold elections. They had an election. They had an election. The one side didn't like the outcome of it, but they had an election and they sent delegates. They, they did everything. So they did exactly what was required of them. Your Excellency proposes in substance the same restriction which I think which should, I should think cannot but meet with their full approbation. So what did he say? That Congress do not exercise the powers vested in them by the fourth section of the first article, but in cases where a state shall neglect or refuse to make the regulations therein mentioned, where they don't make any regulations, or they neglect them, or shall make regulations subversive of the rights of the people to a free and equal representation in Congress, agreeably to the Constitution. Well, they didn't do any of that in Pennsylvania. They didn't do any of that at all. You could say that there's a problem there, but they didn't do any of this at all. So see, under an original interpretation, the Supreme Court may not have had much of a role here. So, again, this is important. So, uh, he continues... The power to be given to Congress to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises has alarmed the minds of some gentlemen. They tell you, sir, that the exercise of the power of laying and collecting direct taxes might greatly distress the several states and render them incapable of raising monies for the payment 
of the respective state debts for, and for any purpose. They say the impose and excise may be made adequate to the public emergencies in time of peace and ask why the laying direct taxes may not be confined to a time of war. You are pleased to propose to us that it be recommended that, quote, Congress do not lay direct taxes, but when the monies arising from the impose and excise shall be insufficient for the public debts, essentially, or the public needs. The prospect of approaching war might necessarily create an expense beyond the productions of impost and excise. How, then, would the government have the necessary means of providing for the public defense? Must they not have recourse to other resources besides impost and excise? So what he's saying here is we should just have tariffs, and then if we are in a war and we have needs, we need to spend money, then we can lay direct taxes. That's not what the Congress does now. They just lay direct taxes all over the place. Now, of course, they would say, that's not a direct tax. Why? Because Hamilton and Hilton v. United States argued that a carriage tax wasn't a direct tax, and the Supreme Court bought it, and therefore we have anything that the Congress wants to do is not a direct tax. It's ridiculous. His last paragraph, Your Excellency's next proposition is to introduce the indictment of a grand jury before any person shall be tried for any crime, which he may incur infamous punishment or loss of life. And it is followed by another, which recommends a trial by jury in civil, action, civil actions between citizens of different states, if either of the parties shall request it. These and several others, which I have mentioned, are so evidently beneficial as to, as to need no comment of mine. And they are all in every particular of so general a nature and so equally interesting to every state that I cannot but persuade myself to think they would all readily join with us in the measures proposed by your excellency, if we should now adopt it. Gentlemen may make additional propositions that they think fit. It is presumed that we shall exercise candor towards each other, and that while wellest on the one hand, gentlemen will cheerfully agree to any proposition intended to promote a general union, which may not be inconsistent with their own mature judgment. Others will avoid the making such as may be by needless or tend to embarrass the minds of the people of this commonwealth and our sister states, and thereby not only frustrate your excellency's wise intention, but endanger the loss of that degree of reputation, which I flatter myself this commonwealth has justly sustained. Long-winded way of saying, you know, we need to do this thing. We need to get these amendments in. You can make some others, but we need to get these amendments that you propose for because Massachusetts needs to lead, and Massachusetts has a reputation to uphold. So Sam Adams is making a very important speech here. It's not a, it's not a speech in opposition to the Constitution. It's actually a speech in favor of an amended Constitution, but he brings up two important parts. The control, federal control of elections, which we're talking about right now, and what the Tenth Amendment actually means. That's original intent. That's what we need to focus on. And I wanted to cover this because I think it's so important to go back to first principles and understand these things as we talk about this stuff amongst ourselves and, of course, go out to the public at large. I know the folks at the Tenth Amendment Center listen to this podcast sometimes, so I hope they hear it and they get this part of it. So important to go back through these things. My Originalist Papers class does just this. What I just did today, I do in that class. If you like this format, if you like how I went through this stuff, you'd love that class. Get it. Originalist Papers Part 1. We're going to have three more parts, and it's going to produce a book entitled The Originalist Papers. So you're going to get that, my edited uh, version of all of these speeches and documents that I'm going to be putting out there. So this is really good stuff. You're going to want it. Go get it. Go out to mclanahanacademy.com, pick it up. 
And also, again, share this podcast around so people get this information too. I'll see you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.